I'll make sure I get that music all straightened out, but I like the song so much I thought I'd sing it today. I just think the message is so appropriate, so powerful. He came to me. I had nothing to give or offer to him. He came to me. Well, we're going to continue with our message series, The Art of Others. If you would take your Bible, turn over to the book of Psalm, chapter 133. We're going to start right there for just a moment. Just one verse. Psalm chapter 133. My voice feels a little strained today. I uh, taught a class earlier and then I sing and then have to preach again. But I was at that carousel, uh, uh, the new building, and uh, all that dust flying around. I'm not so sure that it didn't kind of stuff me up a little bit and kind of get my voice a little scratchy. Plus, I had to yell at those guys to keep them working. It's horrible, horrible. No, not really. Well, I'll tell you what. I just want to tell you, if you were praying for our, our work days, uh, we appreciate that. We had no injuries. We had no, nothing serious, at least. And God bless. We, we did accomplish a great deal. Next week, we are going to be back on, but that's the only other scheduled time for right now. Friday from like 5 to 9 again next week. And, and then, of course, uh, Saturday, probably about the same time. We'll probably work up to about 6 or so. Again, next week, 1 to 6. I think the time worked out pretty well, and so we'll keep it around that. Pretty, pretty reasonable hours, and yet everybody uh, worked good. We realize there's an optimal uh, period of time there, uh, energy, energy drawn there. About two and a half to three hours in, everybody starts to look like, well, it doesn't look like the energy bunny, uh, Energizer Bunny. They start to go, hmm. And so we see the energy levels dropping significantly after about three or four hours. And so we wisely made some decisions this week that I think were very helpful. We got home at least in a decent hour. We were able to relax a little bit and come back ready and fired up to go again. And again, next Friday, if you didn't get an opportunity to be a part of that actual process, we'd sure love to have you. Again, we have a little bit more work to do, or should I say a lot more to do, and we'll get it done. Hopefully by next weekend it will be completed. And so we're excited about that, and uh, we'll go from there. Now along the way, we'll have some other projects, I'm sure. But for right now... Just this week and next week is all we had scheduled. And so if you can give us a hand, that'd be great. Friday at 5, Saturday, 1 o'clock. We'll look forward to seeing you. We'll have a great time again over there. All right. um, Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Well, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about relationships. And our message series is the art of others. And you know, relationships are so essential today. They're essential in every generation and and in any time in history. Relationships are so important. We noted last week that there's a mountain of growing evidence that identifies healthy and satisfying relationships as one of the most important factors to both happiness and health. We noted that last week, and there's good evidence that social support systems have a favorable influence on a wide range of illnesses, things like heart disease and cancer, hypertension and respiratory disorders. I mean, the, the, the numbers are out, the, the, the studies have been done, and there's no doubt that relationships are paramount. They're so important in our lives. And again, positive relationships are essential to good mental and physical health. And so we want to really cultivate good relationships, and we're going to do our best to try to encourage that as we go through these next few weeks. Again, we're living in a very disjointed society. We're connected, no doubt about that. We are connected. But we're lonelier than ever. It seems to me that our relationships rarely go any deeper than maybe a casual post to Facebook or a quick text or maybe a blanket email. It seems to me that we're very, we're very uh, savvy with our computers and we're able to connect uh, through Skype and Facebook and all these different things, but there's very little foundation, very little depth to our relationships. And although we have more people we call friends, people will say, man, I've got 150 friends on Facebook. I've got 600 friends. I've got 1,000 friends on Facebook. It seems that we have no one to really count on in crisis. And so I think it's important. What's the bottom line, I guess? I guess with an increase of severed and splintered relationships in our culture, we're becoming a very lonely and very unsatisfied society. And so I want to spend some time. See, God never intended that we be that type of society. He never intended that we be 
lonely. He didn't intend that we be unsatisfied or unfulfilled. And God wants us to experience very happy relationships. He wants us to have peaceful relationships. He wants us to have strong and stable relationships. Those all breed the kind of satisfaction and the real uh, feel, fulfill the longings in our heart that are truly there. And so we want to deal with relationships. And we said they're an art. It's an art form. It's like any other skill. When we say the art of others, we're talking about a skill or dexterity or the power of performing certain actions. Often it's acquired by or through experience or study or observation. That's an art. You learn how to draw by studying it, by, by, by learning it, by maybe having even a mentor at times. And you, you, you develop the art of drawing. Now you have natural skills, obviously, and there are some people that are a little bit more apt to friendships than others, there's no doubt. But that doesn't mean that we need to lack friendships, that we need to lack relationships. We can have strong, stable, satisfying relationships, and God intends it. So anything that's an art has to be taught, and then it has to be learned. Well, guess what? We have the greatest teacher in all the universe that can teach us about relationships. His name is Jesus Christ. He is a guide today. He's a teacher for us. And I mean, there's no better example, obviously. I mean, he's more qualified than anyone in the room, more qualified than anyone on earth today to teach this subject. Because he loved unconditionally. He accepted people consistently. He forgave all liberally. And he gave himself sacrificially. He knows how to develop. He knows how to maintain. And he knows how to grow relationships. It says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Guess what? Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and I. So this morning I want to share a little bit about the art of others. And specifically, I want to look at the tools of the trade. I want to consider some of the tools of the trade. If you're going to be good with others, if you're going to establish strong, stable, satisfying relationships, you're going to need some tools. And so we're going to look at the life of Christ and we're going to draw out, if you will, glean from the Word of God some of those characteristics and qualities, some of the tools in His arsenal that you and I need to have those kind of relationships. Now, before we do that, I want to look at just a couple of very basic things. First of all, the Bible says in Proverbs 18:24, "...a man that hath friends must shew himself friendly." There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You've got to show yourself friendly. That means you have to be friendly if you want friends. That means you have to be a good spouse if you want a good spouse. That means you're going to have to, to exhibit some of these characteristics and qualities if you want to attract those kind of characteristics and qualities. You don't attract what you want, you attract who you are. So if you're talking about relationships of a, a girl set now hold on now, please don't get angry with me this morning because I'm trying to help. But doesn't it just seem like certain people attract the worst crowd? You may be one of them. I don't know what it is. I can't find me a decent guy. Maybe you need to change as a person. I can't find a decent girl. Maybe you need to change. Well, there's no good guys out there. Yeah, there are. There's no good girls. Absolutely there are. You attract what you are, not what you want. I can't find a friend that's faithful. Whoa, 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 whoa. Be careful what you just said there. You attract what you are. Be careful now. I'm always amazed how many people testify to me about their marriages. They, 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 think, they're, 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 uh, they think they're telling me something, but they're really testifying. I think they're giving me information, you know. Wives, you just can't get a wife to do anything anymore. Well, you just testified. What else, brother? <laughs> Women today are dirty dogs. Really? Mm. You have two daughters and you have a wife. I mean, come on now. You know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm saying we need to be careful what we say. I believe that you can still have good, solid marriages, and I think we can still have good relationships with our children, and we can still see God blessing our friendships. I know our world's going topsy-turvy, and people are going sideways and all crooked, but I'm telling you something, God still flies straight, and if we'll follow His rules and we'll keep our eyes on Him, God will bless us in this area of relationships. We need some tools. The golden rule says, 
Thou shalt love the Lord. He, well, Jesus said, and we call it the golden rule, but Jesus at first said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. We, told, we talked about last week getting that settled. You need to get that one settled first. But then he goes on to say, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. It starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then we are to love our neighbors what? Ourselves. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? Every week we, you know, not every week, but when we, we're at home and all of us are gathered, I like to have a pizza night. We get, listen, I'm going to tell you what. You want to talk about a deal, you can get two extra large pizzas now. This is what I've been getting for years now. At, 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 um, I, I, they just slipped me. Any of my kids in the room? No. That's more expensive than this even. Well, maybe not, maybe not. Oh, no, no, no. What's it called up there in Hartville? Your road gyro, baby. <laughs> Hidden secret, right? Ancient Chinese secret. Okay, maybe ancient Italian secret. Actually, I think they're Greek. But anyway, big pizza. I'm talking about the big one now. I'm not talking about a large. I'm talking about extra large. Two of them, 20 bucks, one, two items. Two items, extra largest, two of them, 20 bucks. Feeds my whole family. Got six grown-ups in my home. Six adults in my home, and we all eat 20 bucks a week. That's all I'll spend on pizza. Now listen to me. When that pizza hits our house, and it sits on that counter, we have a word of prayer. What are you laughing about? And, and I'm telling you now, and I'm not joking here, I, I, I've trained my children well. Now again, at first I felt a little bad about this. But I changed my, I, I, I learned early on, well, I just decided I don't care. I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to do it, you know. But anyway, I, I put, the, we put both those pizzas out. And when we say amen, I, I take my plate. I open the box lid. I know the ones I want. I'll take that one, that one, and sometimes a third if they're really good. Right there, I mean, at one second. I take mine first. You know why? Because I like me better than anyone else. <laughs> now you say, well, I thought you was going to tell me some spiritual reason. No, I'm telling you the truth. I want to get the three best pieces in that box. I'm paying for it. Now again, I understand that's selfish and it's a little self-centered, but isn't that how we are as humans? Now, hold on a second. I'm being transparent. I'm telling you how I really think. I'm like, oh, man, if I'm going to pay for this pizza, I'm going to get the best pieces. Now, hold on. After that, it's on. But boy, that first, that first pick. Now, hold on. What's he say? I mean, the golden rule here. He says, this is the first commandment. He goes, the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, wow. That's a tough one when it comes to pizza night. But isn't that really the test of our life? You know what I'm saying? I mean, really, in reality, isn't it? And we wonder why it's so hard to get a friend. We wonder why it's so hard to have a good marriage. And we wonder why it's so tough to, 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 to get along with our kids when in reality, it's always about me. I'm tell you what, this ain't even the message. It's just all coming. But I'm going to tell you something. You can't have good relationships if it's about you. And I can't if it's about me. Well, I'll tell you what, Jesus taught us that right off the bat, didn't he? He said, if you want to have friends, you have to shoot yourself friendly. He says, listen, I'm telling you, the second greatest of all commandments, after loving me with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, is to, oh, love your neighbors yourself. Oh, that's tough. Why are those sticks on my side of the yard? I didn't put those there. You know what I'm talking about, man. That, that neighbor's going to get it, buddy. And when I mow my grass this time, all my shavings are going right over there. That'll teach it. Not only that, but Philippians 2.4, the Bible says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. What? That doesn't sit well with me. What do you mean? I'm supposed to care whether the kids get a good piece of pizza? 
I'm supposed to be concerned about my neighbor. I'm supposed to be concerned about my wife ahead of myself. I mean, think about what about me? He says, what about others? That's how Jesus always thought. He, instead of Jesus going, what about me? He always thought, what about others? That's the key. One of the most foundational keys in relationships right there. I didn't say that people won't step on you and people won't use you and people won't abuse you. They will. People will take advantage of you, no doubt about it. That's life. But if you want stable, strong, and satisfying relationships in your life, you better get over the me syndrome. Otherwise, you're going to forever be fighting and clawing for every little thing you can get. I called her and she didn't call me back. I left him six text messages. You, you know what, you know, again, what, how do you know? Maybe they were in a car accident. Maybe their phone fell in a bucket of water. I don't know what could have happened, what did happen, but what I know is you'll never have strong, satisfying, stable relationships until you get past the me thing. So what tools of the trade or what characteristics and quality did Jesus possess that can help us master the art of others what are some of the tools in his arsenal so we're going to take a look at those okay let's have a word of prayer father we come to you lord we thank you for this time together and we're just asking you lord to meet with us and then to encourage us lord without you we're nothing we desperately need you so lord open up our hearts and our minds and help us to learn from you today from your blessed book the word of god and lord help us to have better relationships across the board, better relationships as a result of our obedience to you and seeking to imitate your characteristics and qualities. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, Jesus Christ was concerned about others. We mentioned this. Everything you're going to find has to do with him and others. But he was concerned about others. Now again, you know, in our life, it's easy to get focused on self, as we said. Instead of being concerned about others. In the book of Psalm, chapter 8, verse 4, this unbelievable passage, it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? I mean, what is man that thou art mindful? Understand again that Jesus Christ is God, that he's the creator of all things. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then over in the book of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. Excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, he goes on to talk about the Word and say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So therefore, Jesus and God are one. You can't separate them, they're one. You can't say Jesus Christ is just the Son of God only. He is God, the Son. He is God. We serve one God. And He reveals Himself to us in three personages or three persons, so to speak. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But these three, the Bible says in 1 John 5, 7, are one. They're one. Now hold on a second. Jesus Christ is God. He is Creator. And yet the Bible says we say, what? why are you mindful of man then? I mean, here's the creator of all the universe. He leaves glory. He comes and dies on a cross. is buried and rises again. And He's willing to save us, forgive us, and to give us a new home in heaven. He does that. He's mindful of us. How can that be that God Himself is mindful of me or is concerned about me? That's amazing. First Peter 5 says, it says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. The Lord Jesus, God Himself cares for you. When you, no one else cares, when you think nobody else even has an inkling that you even exist, when you go through the mall and nobody even cares that you're there, when you're walking through the grocery store and it just seems that everybody just bumps you and knocks you around, it's as though you don't even exist. God knows and cares. When you're sitting in your house and it seems your children are off running everywhere and the wife or the husband pay no attention to you and you think to yourself, why do I do this? I can't answer why you do everything you do, but what I do know is that He cares. 
You need to cast all your care on Him. He's concerned about you. I think of that feeding of the 4,000. The Bible tells us over in the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called His disciples unto Him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with Me now three days and have eaten, have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way, He said. So, man, these people were hungry. They've been following after me. Oh, yeah, they wanted to be healed. And I was teaching them all kind of doctrine. And I was sharing with them all the things of the kingdom. But here they are now, three days with me. They have no food. They're faint. They're weary. They're tired. I can't send them back home. I'm concerned someone might pass out. Somebody might have a, have a problem or not make it there or dehydrate or whatever it might be. I'm going to feed them. I've got to give them something. You know what he does? Feeds 4,000 of them in that situation. 4,000 of them. That's amazing what Jesus did. He was so concerned about people. It's getting about dinner time. <laughs> you guys are going to have to go. <laughs> are we really concerned about people? I understand that we have to use some wisdom, and we can't just throw money away, and we can't just throw food away, and we can't just do this and do that. We can't do everything we'd like to do many times. And we have to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but we do need to understand that God had a great concern for people, and so should we. If you have concern for people, it'll come across, it'll make a difference in your relationships. Number two, he was considerate of others. Not only was he concerned, but he was considerate. He always thought about people first. The woman at the well. Think about it. He went out of his way to meet her. We must needs go through Samaria. Why you got to go through Samaria? You know we don't like those people, Jesus. Jesus says, it don't matter what you like, what you don't like. I got a meeting scheduled over there at a well because I got to meet a woman that needs me. He was considerate of her need. There he was able to lead that woman that lived in sin to Christ and her life changed and a whole city came to Christ. All because he was considerate of her. The man with a withered hand. Walking around with his hand all crippled up and messed up. Certain people, I'm sure, seen him in the, the tent. Well, you don't belong here, man. You're all crippled up and you have some physical deformities. You don't belong here in the midst of us. And, and Jesus said, come on over. He was considerate of that man that was crippled up and he made him whole. He went from a twisted hand to normal. Fully restored, functional hand. Why? Because he was considerate. That woman with the issue of blood for all those years, she snuck into the crowd, made her way in. If I can only touch the hem of his garment. If I can only touch the hem of his garment. She did. He felt virtue lead him. She was healed. The ten lepers, outcasts in society, weren't even permitted to dwell within the gates of the city. Jesus reaches out to them and heals ten of them. Do you know how many came back and thanked him? One. Jesus, don't you get tired of healing people that aren't grateful? I have no gratitude for what you're doing and don't you get sick of it? Why don't you just give up on people because they don't care? I'm concerned and I'm considerate of them. Somebody's got to care. I'm going to keep healing them. Whether they thank me or not, I'll just keep doing it. The cripple at the pool of Bethesda. Rise and walk. The widow at Nain, whose son was dead, Jesus Christ, had compassion on her and he raised him from the dead. Why did he do all that? Because he was considerate. Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter. She's sick. She needs healing. Jesus is considerate of her and of her daddy. He heals her. He heals her. And I'll tell you what, Jesus always considered others. And he always put others ahead of himself, much like the verses we read just a few moments ago. Number three, number three, not only was he, as we noted already, concerned and considerate, but he was patient with others. He was patient with them. 
Wow. This one's a hard one, isn't it? The disciples, you know, the ones who traveled with him, spent time being trained by him, you know, they weren't always the sharpest knives in the drawer. They just weren't. Jesus could have easily gotten upset. He could have gotten frustrated with them on any given situation, it seems. Instead, he was patient with them. I want you to take your Bible, look over at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Notice how Jesus handles... uh, It's amazing to me how the Lord handles things. In Matthew chapter 17. He's dealing with his disciples here. Notice in verse 14. When they were come to the multitude... There came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. Talking about his disciples now. Have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. What? Jesus had given them all power. He told them that they could heal, but for some reason they couldn't heal. So now here's this man talking to Jesus now because his disciples were unable to heal his son. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long shall I put up with you is what he was saying. How long shall I be patient with you? Bring him hither to me. Verse 18, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Hold on, I thought they had traveled with Jesus. I thought they'd seen multitudes of miracles. I I thought he had trained them from the very words that flowed from his lips, he being Christ, the God of heaven, the literal Word of God. There they had it, from the, right from his own lips. What do you mean they were faithless after everything they saw, after everything they experienced? But they were. Jesus said unto them, verse 20, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Man, I mean to tell you, if that had been my group of disciples, I'd have probably been like, Are you kidding me? What are you guys, a bunch of losers? I'd even gave them the sign. I've traveled with you these three and a half years. I've invested my life. I've poured myself into you. I've given you all the best that I could give you. And you don't have any faith. Be gone. I'll find somebody that does. But Jesus was patient. I do believe that God's patience wears thin sometimes. Don't don't misunderstand God. There'll come a day that you and I all will pay for our sin that is not confessed and forsaken. You'll not get away with your sin forever because sooner or later God will call us all to judgment. But He is very patient with us. Another example of Christ's patience is noted toward the end of His life on earth with Peter. This one I found very intriguing. Again, Matthew chapter 26. Look over there if you will please. Verse 31. 26.31 In chapter 26, verse 31, we read, And saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus is letting them in on that truth that he's going to go to, to, 
to Jerusalem and they're going to condemn him to die, that they're going to mock, make fun of him and ultimately assault him and then hang him on a cross and kill him. Verse 33, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. I think that's probably one of the most unread portions of Scripture in the whole Bible there. Likewise also said all the disciples. I don't have time to focus on that. But you never hear about them being unbelieving. It's always Peter. You, you know what I'm saying? Don't, doesn't he get a bad rap? He did open his mouth first, though. Sometimes it's better, you know, even a fool when he holdeth his peace is counted wise, and a man that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding, right? Peter should have learned a lesson, but it took him a while, and he did ultimately. But notice, he makes this statement. I mean, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. We all go, you go, boy. That's good stuff, Peter. You stand on the rock. Wait a second, it gets better now. Now it gets to where I can understand it. Then come a Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him, who did he take? Let's see here. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Doesn't sound like a very difficult request, does it? I'm going to go pray over here in the garden, and all I want you to do is watch with me. Keep your eyes open. Keep listening. If you want to say a prayer or two, go ahead. But I want you to watch with me. I want you to stand with me. I want you to be with me. You three are chosen, and Peter, I've called you out. I want you there, and I need you there. Oh, don't you worry about me, Jesus. I'm on the job. You know me. I'm Peter. You know me. I'll never deny you. You know me. The other man, they, I won't, even unto the death. See what Peter does. Verse 39. So Jesus went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He's facing the cross. He's burdened. He's heavy hearted. Verse 40. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth. This has got to be a misprint. Because Peter's not even going to deny him. He'll die with him. So I know he didn't fall asleep. I know he didn't fall asleep. He findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Though everyone, though everybody deny you, I won't. Hey, the cock's going to crow three times and you'll deny me. Ho, 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 not me, buster. Though I die, I will die with you before I'll deny you. You come pray? Can you watch with me just for an hour? I'm not asking you to die, Peter. I'm asking you just to stand here, just to watch with me, just to pray if you want. Will you do that? I'm burdened. I'm heavy hearted. Can you do that for me? <laughs> what do you think? Wake up, Peter! Huh? You imagine that? Doesn't that sound like us? I'm a Christian. I'd never deny the Lord. Never! What do you mean, did I read my Bible today? Well, got kind of busy. <laughs> Pray? Well, I, I, I did do that. I think we prayed over supper before we ate last night. I mean, did you pray? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'll get to it. I won't deny thee. Hey, listen to me. You think that God isn't patient with us? 
Think about how patient he was with these disciples. Think about it. After everything he invested in, Peter can't even stay awake and watch with him. Jesus didn't say, you're done, you're finished, no longer disciple. Draw a circle with a disciple and a slash through it. He didn't do that, did he? Patient with Peter. Just like he's patient with you and I. You want to know something? If you want strong, stable, and satisfying relationships, you better find a way to be patient with people. Because people are going to make mistakes. That's just life. They're not a very good friend. They weren't there for me when I needed them. Uh, They had to take their child to the hospital because he got in a bicycle accident. Skinned his knee all up, thought he broke his leg. Oh, I didn't know that. I just assumed they didn't show up. I mean, they're supposed to be my friend. They should be there for me anytime I need them. Wait, what happened to you? I thought you were supposed to be their friend too. No patience at all with people. We expect the world from them and nothing from ourselves often. We want everybody to be totally loyal to us, but our loyalty has to only go so deep. I mean, I understand why I didn't make it to that activity. I know why I didn't make it over to that particular situation or that that party. I know why I wasn't there to support my friend or to be at the ball game or whatever. I know what I said, but I have a good reason for it. We understand and we have every excuse in the world why we couldn't follow through with our commitment, but then we expect it from them all the time. Listen, you're never going to have strong, stable, and satisfying relationships until you get a hold of some of the tools in the bag that Jesus possesses. And one of those tools is patience. If you're not patient with people, you'll never be able to have the kind of relationships that you truly desire and need in your life. There's a couple others, but let me finish with this one. He was forgiving toward others. Now, here we go. We're kind of patient, yes, but let's get down to the nitty-gritty now, huh? This is one of the most difficult ones for a believer to deal with and to embrace. It's the hardest one for people as a whole to face in most cases. Probably there's more bitterness rooted in people's lives growing in their heart as a result of a lack or a failure to forgive than anything else in the world. It's, It's a horrible, horrible disease. It's a worse disease than cancer, and I'm not making light of cancer. Don't misunderstand me. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. There are some things worse than death. I know you hear people say all the time, There's, you know, what could be worse? So you're going to threaten me with heaven? There are some things worse than heaven, uh, worse than death. You know, the Christian, the Christian listen to me, the Christian life, the be, the, one of the best things that could ever happen to us is to die. And because we end up in a paradise with our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, let me tell you something. There's a lot worse things than death. At least for the believer. Not for the unbeliever, but for the believer. And I'm going to tell you something. Forget, unforgiveness will lead you down a path to some of those roads, some of those areas. It'll ruin your life. It'll make you miserable beyond your belief. It'll lead you to sins that you never dreamed were possible. I think of that woman taken in adultery. Everybody was ready to stone her. Literally. Literally. Hey, listen, I'm not condoning adultery, neither is Jesus Christ. Spelled out very clearly, it's a wicked, abominable sin. However, look at what Jesus deals with. John chapter 8. Look how he handled it. John chapter 8, verse 4. I found out in my life and I found out in the lives of others that there's enough people to tell me I'm wrong. I don't need everybody doing it. There's always somebody that's quick to tell me how I'm messing up. And you know, and then the Lord, obviously, in His Word, when I really want to get serious with some things, all i got to do is read it. I know He makes it clear to me when I'm messing up by the numbers. But hold on a second. I, 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 I even worse than someone telling me I'm wrong is treating me like I'm wrong. I mean, it's bad. I mean, let's face it. If I'm doing something that's unscriptural and wrong, then yes. I understand it's wrong. Everybody can see it. It's blatant. I don't, nobody has to gossip about it. It's just out there. Everybody knows it. I'm so tired of hearing people talk about, I don't like to go to that church because they gossip all the time. What are you talking about? You go out and live in sin and you think that it's hidden? 
The only way people found out is because someone's talking about you behind your back. You mean to tell me you don't think people know what you do in life? Are you kidding me? And then you'll talk about it on Facebook? We've got teenagers and we've got adults in this church that cuss on Facebook all the time. If I turn around and you hear somebody say, somebody said you was cussing on Facebook. There they go again talking about me. Why don't you quit talking like that on Facebook? There ain't nobody gossiping. That's not gossip. That's the reality. That's a fact. It's right there for in black and white for everybody to see. You're supposed to be a child of God. You're supposed to be a new creature. You're supposed to be saved and born again, consecrated and separated under the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare you cuss on Facebook? And how dare you put your stamp of approval on somebody that does? You don't have a right to tell me how to live. Well, then why don't you start reading this book and realize that God thinks that's abominable and sinful? How in the world are we supposed to win others to Christ when we live and act just like them? I'm sorry. I did. Now I'm preaching. I'm not just teaching. I'm preaching. We've got to close this thing out, though. Look at this woman. At the, I love this woman taking adultery. I, I love how Jesus handles it. And you're going to remember as soon as you hear it. John chapter 8, verse 4. Look at this. Gives me hope for my life. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Wow. Wow. Now, Moses in the law commanded us. Okay, you're right, he did. Now, let's go ahead. Let's see what he said. That such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Hmm. Anybody read the Bible? And I know you have. So hold on. Let's just get down to the nitty gritty here. How's come there's only a woman standing there if she was caught in the various act? Because, see, the last time I checked in the Bible, you bring them both. Something's wrong here now. Something's wrong here. I don't know. Maybe she was caught in the very act. Very act. I don't know. But what I do know for sure is that there should have been somebody standing there with her if it was going to be based on the commandments, based on the Word of God. God's not like that. He doesn't respect people. He doesn't say, well, oh, you're one of the Sadducees or you're one of the Pharisees or you're one of the religious leaders. You take a walk while this one pays the price. No, Jesus don't work like that. Everybody's on equal ground at the cross. But we got this woman here now. What are we going to do with her? She's caught in the very act. doesn't matter that the guy didn't come Jesus. What are you going to do about it, Buster? What do you have to say? I was trying to paint Jesus in a corner. He lived in a round room, though. You couldn't put him in a corner for nothing. They said, he goes, this they said, tempting him that they might have access to him. Or, excuse me, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, it says here, he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He's disregarding, just writing something on the ground. I don't have a clue what he wrote. There's all kind of commentaries, there's all kind of preachers, there are all kind of people that have surmised and came up with ideas what he might have wrote. I don't know, I wasn't there. And the Bible doesn't tell me for sure, but what I know is that something happened that was pretty awesome. So he stooped down with his finger, he wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. What do you got to say about this, Jesus? Well, let's see. Now, he knew that they were sinning already because they didn't fulfill the commands of Scripture. He, we know that much. Man, I mean, the very ones that were claiming she was in sin had sinned themselves. Here we, we got our rocks. We're ready. What do you have to say, Jesus? Come on, this is how we deal with those kind of people. You know, we're not out there. We're, we're cut above them. You know, we're, they're, they're the lower crust. We're the upper crust. We're ready. We got the rocks ready. Here we go. They weren't handling things scripturally at that point. Jesus turns around and says to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Do you know before it was over with, not one person stood there? There was such great conviction that day. Everybody in that place, everybody there realized, I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. You know, if we'd see ourselves as the sinner... We wouldn't be so preoccupied with everybody else's sin. 
Man, God help us. God help us to see ourselves as sinners the way Jesus does without his blood applied to our life. But then once Jesus applies his blood to our life, that sin's washed away. I'm so happy today that my sin is washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. When he died on that cross 2,000 years ago and hung there, he hung there for me. Every nail that went in his hand, every nail on his feet, every ounce of agony and pain, every single feeling of hurt and heartache that he had was all for me. He said, no, it was for me too. I know, but I don't care about you right now. It's personal. And until it gets personal to you, it'll mean nothing. He died for the sin of the world, preacher. Yeah, but that's not good enough for you. He had to die for you. See, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave His Son to the world, but only those in the world that acknowledge His sacrifice and allow Him to forgive their sin by applying His blood to their life will escape hell. The rest will pay for their sin themselves. Thank God He died for me. Thank God He rose for me. Thank God He's my Savior today. Now, if He's your Savior, good for you. But I wonder today, has He forgiven you? You say, I've never committed adultery. You don't have to commit adultery to be guilty of the law and the penalty of death. Hey, read those Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not... Bear false witness, which means a lie. Let's stop right there for a minute. Have you ever lied? Guess what? You're guilty of the law. And the Bible says over in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to look at it right now, and then we're done with the Bible, and we're going to close. James, chapter 2, verse 10. James. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, And yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. You can keep the whole law, but offend in one point of it. It doesn't say if it's the big sin or little sins. There's no big or little with God. It's sin. You offend in one point of those commandments. Even one. And then he says you are guilty of all. What's he saying? You get the book thrown at you. You stand before the judge of all the earth and the universe. And he looks at your life and you say, hey, I lived a pretty good life. I did my very best. I had much more good than bad. He says, but you sinned against my law. And you say, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but I, you got to understand. But you sinned against my law. i got to throw the book at you. Doesn't that break your heart to think about family, friends, and loved ones? Or maybe even you having the book thrown at you. I mean, he's going to have to say every of all the commands, they're all part of one. The penalty of sinning against this law is to be eternally separated from me forever in the lake of fire? Sorry. Take him away. Take her away. God is holy. God is perfect. And He's sinless. And He gives us every opportunity to make this right. He gave us the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. A friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He died for you. You just have to accept that as reality. You have to trust Him. And the only reason you need to trust Him is because you have nothing and no one else to trust. There's no other option. And unless you see yourself as the sinner that deserves death, you cannot be saved. 
I'm a pretty good person. You can't be saved then. You can't. I think I'm a little sinner. You can't be saved. Don't you realize that even the least bit of sin is an abomination in the sight of a holy God? We're as putrid open sores in His sight, the Bible says. But the blood of Jesus Christ washes our sin away, makes us white as snow, cleanses us eternally. You need Christ today, and so do I. He is the ultimate example of how to handle relationships. And it all begins with a relationship with Him. And after that, others can be blessed by it. Father, we come to You. We thank You for this time together. And we thank You, Father, for Your sim- simple Word. Lord, in this place today, there may be those that have yet to solidify and settle their salvation. And when I say salvation, Lord, you know my heart. I'm talking about the fact that you died for them, that they're the sinner. Oh, we can point to that woman who was an adulteress. We can point to others that have done heinous, horrible crimes. But Lord, the truth is, if we've even just told a little white lie, if we've just broken the law in the least, then unfortunately, we're going to have to pay as though we broke the whole law. God, I don't want to spend one moment in hell and I'm thankful that you died for me, you buried for me, and you rose again for me, that you paid the penalty for my sin, and that I'm glad that I accepted you as my Lord and Savior. But Lord, there may be those that have yet to do that. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me quickly ask you, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Have you settled the issue of your soul salvation? Do you know that you're the sinner? And are you confident that he will save you if you would let him? I promise you he will. Can can we show you that? Very briefly. You've already been, the basics have been laid out. We're just going to take the word of God and show you a couple of scriptures that help to solidify the fact in your mind from God's word that he will forgive and save you if you'll ask him. And I wanted that. I needed that. I couldn't do it without him because I'm the sinner. That's me, preacher. Let's all stand to our feet. No music yet. All stand to our feet.